We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. What is the impact of losing a parent? It's an important question to address because it's an experience we're all likely to go through or have already done. How do you process the bereavement? What happens if you're really young when it happens? My witness is Amanda Sederhelm, who is a certified play therapist and works with children 4 to 10 and specialises in helping teachers, organisations and parents talk to children about bereavement, the strain of divorce or general anxiety and the effects of loss and change. She's a member of the British Association of Counselling and Psychotherapy and of the Association for Family Therapy and Systemic Therapy. She is also the author of Helping Children Cope with Loss and Change, a guide for professionals and parents. In addition to all of that, she has a podcast and website called Helping Children Smile Again. When Amanda approached me to appear on this podcast, I did not appreciate the depth and the breadth of this topic. I don't work with children. My clients are normally in their late 20s all the way up to their 60s. But I've had many people who were still carrying the pain from losing a parent as a child. More times than not, the death was not handled well. After all, the surviving parent had a huge amount of grief themselves. And there's another reason why I'm particularly pleased to have Amanda today. The topic has become more personal. Although I'm 62 years old, I've recently become a bereaved child. I should point out that my father was 91, but I was still his child, and losing a parent at any age is tough. So we have a lot to discuss. So, Amanda, welcome. And before we dive in, I'd be grateful if you could tell me how you became a play therapist, because your first job was as a publisher of medical books, and that was something you really loved. So why this big change of career? Well, thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here to talk about this topic, which is very close to my heart. My love of it really came from expressing learning how to use a voice. Publishing books is, is all about finding the voice and packaging that so that it's in a form that other people can benefit from. So it was, it was absolutely a career that I loved doing. Um, however, I became a play therapist out of adversity, really. I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer in 2002. And that changed the course, the nature, the quality, the tone of my life forever. It also meant that I was unable to have my own children. And that loss, as anyone will know who's, who's listening to this, never goes away. That sense of unbearable longing, really, never never goes away. So it was the, the beginning of my my inward journey into finding meaning, if you like, finding a sense of where was my life going to take me if it wasn't going to take me forwards into motherhood. I, I should say I am very fortunate. I do have um, 
I do have four godchildren, which is lovely, but it's not a replacement and nor can it ever be. So that exploration was deep and took a period of years for me to really begin to understand that not having children biologically didn't prevent me from connecting with my mothering spirit, with my sense of wanting to be able to share my life in a different way with children. And it was really, I suppose, at at that point in my own personal therapy, where I made that discovery that opened the door for me to start thinking about life differently and how my life could be different. And I knew at that point that was going to involve a career change. Going back into publishing didn't feel right at that time. The world had changed anyway. It was becoming a very technological process, which for me was something I didn't want. I wanted the the close connection with creativity. So I decided then to work with children to go directly, if you like, into the, I want to say into the fire because that's how it felt. It was really not walking away from my pain and my wound. It was walking towards it. So retraining as a play therapist has been a joy in many, many ways. Thank you very much for sharing that. I mean, there's two things I just want to lift up straight away. And this is really interesting for a podcast on the meaningful life is the connection between loss and change, which um, I think a lot of people will understand. But I'd like you to just tell me a little bit more about walking into the fire, walking into the wound, because everybody's natural reaction (laughs) is to get the hell out and go the opposite direction. But it sounds really important. So can you just expand on that for me? Yes. Well, it it was really a discovery I made when I faced my own mortality. It was the realization that I could have died. I was you know, I had a 30% chance of survival at that point. So it felt as if all my defences, all my stabilizers, all the props I'd used in my life to that point to drive me forwards, you know, ambition and goal setting fell away. And I, all I was left were, with was this sort of burning ember of, well, okay, this is, this is really all I'm left with is this loss. And it felt as if I'd got nothing to lose. But of course, now with the benefit of experience and training and reflection, I see that how necessary that was to really continue my life. If I'd remained in that stage and not moving forward, I'm not sure I would have survived. So actually going into the fire was actually healing. Immensely healing. It was through that process that I made the discovery that I am the writer. I'd been publishing other writers. I'd been nurturing their creative journeys, helping them to find their voice. But actually in the fire, I discovered my own voice. I discovered I was the writer. I was the creative woman, spirit. And that the more I embraced that, the more joyful I felt. And I began to come alive again in a different way so that life took on a different meaning and a different purpose. 
Now, when I was uh, reading your website, I was shocked with one of the statistics I found there, which was 92% of children and young people will experience a significant bereavement or loss before the age of 16. I mean, I just thought that was extraordinary. And for a, a millisecond, I didn't believe it. And then I suddenly realized that actually I had a personally had a big bereavement. My uh, grandfather died when I was about four or five. And I can actually remember very clearly being told by my mother about my grandfather's death. And I started crying. And she said, don't be so silly. I mean, she didn't actually quite use these words, but these are the words that she meant. Um, it was a blessed relief because, I mean, obviously I couldn't understand this. He had cancer and he'd had an awful lot of suffering, which I was sort of only half aware of. But I got the message very young that feelings were not acceptable. So actually, you know, what a surprise, as I often say on this podcast. What a surprise I became, first of all, a therapist and then a podcast host on the subject of feelings. And in a sense, I had actually discounted that whole experience, but actually it's incredibly seminal to the point that I didn't actually consider myself as a bereaved child, but actually in your definition, I was a bereaved child. Do you think a lot of other people are sort of minimising these kind of experiences too? Absolutely. I think it's one child in every classroom is bereaved of either a parent or a grandparent. And I think, you know, people of, of our generation, you know, the Victorians, if you like, gave us the model of dealing with grief and loss in a very stoic way. It was about carrying your grief, but carrying it silently. And that was somehow a badge of honour, not talking about it. And that's really the beginnings of where grief started to become invisible. The idea that we talk about our feelings. Yes. And I think it's important here to say that our experience of loss as a child will be affected by our parents' experience of loss. So the wars, for instance, will have had a huge impact on our grandparents and parents who really, I think, as we know now as therapists, were in a fight or flight situation permanently and probably quite frozen, what I would call frozen in their grief. I see this a lot, that there is a sense that time stops when the person you love dies, time stops. You remember that day forever. And from that point on, it's about trying to unfreeze gradually so that the feelings don't overwhelm you. But if we're not shown how to do that, and very often, even now, schools really struggle with this idea of helping children to express their grieving feelings. So I think we need to talk about, first of all, how to talk to children full stop, and then we'll go on to the, the tougher question. Because what I'm sort of suspecting, and you're going to have to tell me whether I'm right or wrong, that play therapy is very different from sitting down and like I was in the bath, you know, I was trapped, and I'm going to give you this piece of information. So that seems to me not the best way of talking to children. So let's just do how to talk to children full stop, and then we'll do the difficult topics. So your thoughts on, on that? Talking to children of, of any age, really, as a parent, um, I think the first thing you have to do is to settle yourself, be, be in a place where you can 
communicate the information, not only clearly, but in a, in a safe way. So if we are, as adults, are anxious and frightened, that will very often communicate directly to the child so that the child, whatever the information that they cognitively take in, the feeling that they have associated with that information is one of fear and and sadness and maybe anger, all of which are normal and absolutely fine. But when you're first telling a child about a death, you need to be in a very contained sense of yourself. The second thing is to make sure that the language that you use is unambiguous. So it's not helpful to say things like, oh, daddy's gone to heaven or granddad's uh, up in the clouds because children of a primary school age particularly will imagine that maybe, you know, daddy's going to come down from from that cloud or that heaven space, wherever that might be. And they have what we, we call a lot of fantasies around that person returning. It's called magical thinking. And it's a very mm-hmm. normal part of child development at that stage when the child's grieving. But as an adult, we need to reassure them the way we can help children begin to even understand what's going on is by using very clear, un- unambiguous language. So daddy has died. You know, using the word death and dying is very important. And how do they understand a concept like death and dying? Because to be perfectly honest, yeah. Yeah. I'm still getting my head <laughs> around it now. Exactly, exactly. And here's the, here's the really, that's the real nub of it, Andrew, is that it is a process Although the act of death is final, irrevocable, obviously, understanding that takes time. It's a process. Bereavement is a process. Grieving is a process. It's not something that we're going to do. You know, we're told the news on a Friday and on a a Saturday morning, we're going to wake up and go, okay, I guess it now. Right. That's fine. He's dead. He's gone. He's never coming back. Because that's the work. The work is the grieving of that loss and learning to, so there are many different models of grief, as, as you will know, the most well-known one is probably the Kubler-Ross one, which is the stages of grief, which I don't think particularly helpful, particularly with children. I much prefer the Lois-Tonkin model of grief, which is about accommodation. We, we learn to accommodate that loss. I agree with you that the stages of grief are not necessarily particularly helpful because you can have all of them on the same day as somebody <laughs> who uh, has experienced grief. But tell me about the, is it the Tompkins model? Yes, Lois Tompkin. She's sadly dead now, but her, her model of grief was the idea that we learn to grow around our grief. So mm. we... We learn to grow around our grief. We learn to grow around our grief you'll often hear people say, well, are you over it yet? Yeah? We never, we, exactly, we never get over the loss. We learn to grow around it. And as children age and they, and they grow up, hopefully, and if they are introduced to this model early on, they will start to understand that it's a lifelong journey for them, that it's okay for them to to carry that grief. It's how they will grow and change with it. 
I think this would be a good point to talk about play therapy. So one, we get a sense of it and also a sense of how it could actually help a child to process this information because, you know, I'm having problems as an adult processing this and, you know, all I can say is God help the children deal with it. Well, thank you for that empathy because that's so important to to connect with really when you're dealing with a grieving child. So the, the point about play therapy is that children don't have, of a primary school age, don't have the cognitive functioning to say, as you and I would say, I'm feeling sad today. I'm feeling lonely without daddy or mummy or granddad, grandma, whoever it is. So they internalise all that information can very often get stuck. Play is a, is a child's natural language. It's how they express themselves. So by giving children the space and the the toys to to use as their medium, it becomes what I call the bridge between their their cognitive functioning and their emotional feelings and their expression. So it takes the pressure off. So let me imagine what's actually in your office. You know, I have comfy chairs. I assume that you have something quite different in your office. So paint me the picture. Yes. So in my play therapy room, I do have chairs, but I have a selection. I have a play therapy kit, it's called, and that contains musical instruments, drawing, painting tools, dressing up box, clay, sand, a sand tray. So all these items are positioned in the same place in the room. So each week the child will come into the to the room knowing that those play mediums are positioned in the same place. That helps to build a sense of safety and consistency for the child. And each week they will take the toys that they want and they'll play with them. And at the end of the session, I'll return the toys to the place. And you'll be amazed at how often a child will come into the room. And if something has changed position, they will laser in on that. They'll immediately notice that the crocodile isn't in the same place as it was last week. This is because they're starting to internalise the objects that have perhaps been lost. You know, the people uh, have died. The objects start to then represent those losses. And the more connected they become to those objects, the safer they start to feel until they get to a point where they've played out all the stories each week And the story can be retold each week and many weeks until they have internalised the meaning and the learning that they need to take from that experience. And once that's completed, they are complete, they are satisfied and they're able to go forward. And is it you that makes up the stories or do they tell the stories? What happens? Initially, in my practice, I allow the children to do what we call indirect play therapy. This is originated by Virginia Axline, who was the American play therapist who wrote a book called Dibs in Search of Self, which really began the play therapy movement or profession. And she talks about letting the child lead the play, because that way I as the therapist will learn what it is the child wants to tell me. And I then mirror that, I stay alongside the child. So initially the child will start to, what I call, unpack their stories. When we start to get to know each other a little bit better, then I can move around into more direct play. So I will pick up on themes, 
metaphors, symbols that the child has shown me through the play. And we'll start to build and create new stories from that. So you've got both a very childlike unpacking to start with, and then you introduce a more, what I would call a more adult, more direct way of of communicating. So parents who also probably play alongside their children are the things that they should be looking out for? Absolutely. I think there's a lot now that parents can do with their children to not just play games and be very passive. Too often I see parents really struggling with this because they'll say, but, you know, he's not happy when he's playing. He's bored. And I'll, you know, sit him down with a game and then very often he'll start having a meltdown. And I'll say yes, because what he's wanting is for you to connect with him through the play. So I call it pockets of play. Parents can find pockets of playtime at home, whether it's, you know, 15 minutes before dinner or half an hour afterwards, to set aside that time where you are engaged with the child. So they're not just sitting on the floor playing the game or making something. You are with them and noticing and observing and actually reflecting back to them the things that you see, because that's how children feel heard. That's how they feel that you have seen them. They're visible and you notice what they're doing and what they're showing you. And that helps to create that bond, that sense of, you know, the the family, the parental attachment bond that secures it. So it's almost if a a toy, let's stay with uh, bereavement or loss or divorce or whatever, their play is changed quite a lot and toys are left out or whatever, it might sort of be worth asking, oh, why is the crocodile not playing today sort of kind of thing? And, you know, why is Poppy Pocket or whatever the doll's name is, why is she over here rather than over there? Those are sort of quite useful questions to ask. Am I am I right? You're absolutely right. What you're doing there is linking between what the child's showing you and what you are seeing. So again, you're giving the child their a way in to talk more about Poppy the Pocket Puppet or, you know, Lionel the Lizard or whoever it is. By giving that object a name, you're allowing the child to go into metaphorical play, which is where they go when they're not quite ready to talk directly to you about their sadness, but they can talk about Lionel being very sad today. You know, Lionel's feeling really sad today because, you know, he's all on his own. And then you could go, oh, Lionel's feeling sad today. He's feeling all alone. What do you think Lionel needs today? Well, I think Lionel needs a big hug because he's feeling particularly lonely. So you you would then go with that storyline and then unpack it a little bit more until the child has expressed their feelings. That's what you're trying to get to is how do they feel? We have to remember, and I'm now really talking in broad terms, not just about the death of a parent, but divorce or, you know, you've left friends behind because you've moved from one part of the country to another part of the country, or maybe even to a whole new country. So there's loss in in that way. As parents, my experience is most of them are invested in hoping their children are doing fine. And that means that they tend to see the evidence that they want to see. They want to see the doing fine. And as I know from talking to these children when they're adults many years ago, they're very good at giving their parents what it is they want. 
to pleasing them, you know, making them think it's everything is okay. So we've got somebody who's also dealing with loss. We've got children that don't want to upset you. How do you get past all of that? I think one way is to understand the family narrative. What is the family story around dealing with difficult situations, whether, as you say, all types of what Julia Samuel calls a living loss? So to give us an idea of how that works, would you be kind and share your own family's narrative so we get a sense of what a narrative might be? Yes. So my family, my family narrative really, um, as I've come to understand it as an adult, was to really um, have a stiff sherry, go for a brisk walk, (laughs) and basically work our way through. We can work through anything. If only we work hard enough, we will stop those feelings from becoming a nuisance. In fact, feelings were seen as a bit of a bit of an interruption, really, a bit of a bit of a nuisance in, in my family. Were we separated at birth? Because they sound <laughs> remarkably like my parents. <laughs> oh dear. Um I, bless them. I I think it was very helpful in the early stages of my life and my career, you know, it, it gave me a tremendous drive, a great sense of ambition and service and wanting to serve. And I'm grateful for that. But what it didn't help me with at all was, I suppose, unfreezing from the fight or flight scenarios. So my family moved to live abroad for a number of years when I was, was a teenager. And that relocation wasn't just a physical relocation, it was a psychological and an emotional relocation. And again, the modelling I had from them was to just get on with it, you know, let's just keep moving forward. It's a great adventure. It's a great adventure, exactly. And look what you can do today. Look at all these great opportunities. And, And I just really missed all my friends, my sense of placement. And it gave me a very early awareness of the importance of of home coming, of feeling I have a home within myself and I also have a physical home. I'm writing about this in my new book. And I think homecoming is something that we all need to learn how how to to do, really. It's how do we be at home with our own feelings, with our own pain and agony and and loss and grief and, and joy as well. So, yes, that's that's just an example from from my family. So, be aware of your family story because actually, being aware of the family story is the first step to saying, actually, is this going to serve? Well, first of all, does it still serve me? And actually, is this the message I want to pass on to my children? Because it might be that you don't really want to encourage them to drink sherry and to go on long walks, because there might be other ways of coping with all of this. Exactly. And I think often I see families reach that point of awareness when they break down, when there is a loss. That's when they realise that those mechanisms, that those models, those old narratives no longer work. So my, my narrative of stiff up a lip, you know, keep going, ceased to work when I became ill because I had to, mm. I, I realised that wasn't going to, to make me happy. It, it, it really wasn't something that was working anymore. I had to find something else. So 
I think it's quite typical for people when they are grieving a loss to feel, help, I'm stuck. But actually, that is a place of discovery to work from. It, it can cause panic, but actually, it can also be a moment where you open what I call, you know, those invisible doors into yourself to, to find actually what is the new story going to be about. So I think this would be a good point to introduce an idea of yours, which is called the invisible backpack of grief. Now, you could use this with children, but you could also use it with yourself. And I'm going to encourage us all to actually think about this exercise. So before we go and ask, or before I'm going to ask you your three questions, perhaps you can explain this metaphor of the backpack of grief. Yes, the invisible backpack of grief, we start to carry that around with us when we're very young. So children have two backpacks. They have a physical backpack that's filled with books and pencils that they literally carry around with them to school. And they also carry, we all carry an invisible backpack. And it starts to become heavy the more experiences we have in life that are not made visible. So if if they are losses or trauma, any kind of trauma that doesn't become something we understand, it's invisible, it can start to develop a sense of heaviness. And we we are literally our, our emotional backpack gets loaded up with these experiences. And when we're not taught, actually I wasn't taught at school, I, I don't know if you were how to do this, that there is such a thing <laughs> as, you know, feeling overwhelmed, feeling overloaded feeling at a loss, feeling hopeless, all these feelings, which is what the backpack really contains, they can literally overwhelm us and, of course, overshadow our sense of self if they're not understood. And that's really what we're going to do. And in many ways, actually, we often see the symptoms rather than the backpack. So if you are completely and utterly exhausted and weighed down, that probably means that your invisible backpack of grief is rather on the large side. So if this is beginning to speak to you, here are the three questions. The first question is, what is inside the backpack? Help us answer that question, Amanda. What is inside the backpack is looking at milestones of experience that you've had. I've mentioned some of mine, moving into a different country, changing schools, losing friendships, ending friendships, anything that is what I would call unexpected and that you're unprepared for. These are the things that you want to really identify and name that are in your backpack. So what's in your backpack is a naming exercise. It's looking at your life in stages, it can be chronological, it can be developmental, looking at those stages and saying, what were the critical points in my life where I suffered, I struggled, I was misunderstood? That's what we want to do in that stage. And I think it's really important to say if they had an impact on you, they go in there, even if somebody, you know, the next person is not going to think the death of your lizard was particularly bad, but actually for you it was and the reactions of people to it made it even worse. So, you know, if the lizard dying was for you a painful thing, it goes in the backpack. You know, the fact that if you polled 50 people in the street, they'd say, oh, it's a lizard. 
you know, who cares doesn't matter. It's actually what you experience that counts. Absolutely. The, the unacknowledged, the sense of feeling unacknowledged about is really what we're trying to unearth here. And this, this can be a very emotional stage to go through. Very often people will, for the first time, be naming a miscarriage, perhaps, mm. the death of a baby in the womb. It can be the realisation that their mother had a miscarriage early on and they weren't aware of that. So we carry around all these experiences and events that have happened to us but haven't been allowed for whatever reason to become known to us. We haven't named them. Once we do, we start to make connections. So in terms of maybe mothering, particularly and, and one's mother, knowing what she went through, can very often help us understand, well, actually, that's that's affected me too. That's the same for me. I didn't know that. And even if your mother doesn't acknowledge them and poo-poos them, mm. the impact, the unexpressed stuff gets moved on to you. So, you know, just because she didn't consider it a, you know, oh, I had a miscarriage, on an unconscious level, it will have been there and it will have moved on to you most probably. So just because she poo-poos it doesn't mean that it can't go in your backpack. Uh, Absolutely. And this is also a patterning stage. So it can sometimes reveal a pattern of maybe abuse or violence that may have taken place in a grandparents may have may have had, you know, there may have been abuse in the in the grandparent relationship that may have then appeared in the parental relationship. And, and so on and so forth. So there's a generational piece here, which is very important to bring into the answering of that question. So once we've got a list of what's in the backpack, this is a beautiful question. Thank you very much for it. How do you communicate with what's inside your backpack? Explain that question. So communicating with what's inside the backpack is the real interior part of this experience and of this exercise. And this is where I introduce creativity into the process. So communicating with what's inside needs to be held, I think, safely within a therapeutic relationship. You can do it outside, you can do it on your own, but I think using therapeutic writing or journaling or painting particularly and drawing are tools that will help you communicate with the experiences that you've just identified. So whatever those losses are, take them sensitively, pace yourself to go through it as you engage with each one to really draw out the meaning. And are we looking at the tone of the voice that you speak to yourself about all of these things? Is it a kind voice or is it a critical voice or an impatient voice? I think it's about a compassionate voice learning self-compassion and also we're dealing really here with the inner child we're starting to really communicate with our inner child in this in this part which depending on our experiences can be a very tender maybe unnurtured child and we may be looking at her for the first time and looking at her in different ages as well and learning to accept her as she is and as she was, and to forgive ourselves, forgive other people. So it's learning to be compassionate and I would say non-violent in our, in our communication with ourselves. 
Uh, that's a, a lovely way of putting it, non-violent with our communication mm -hmm. with ourselves, because sometimes we're not very kind to ourselves, are we? No, there can be a tendency, I think, when things arise here to do the stiff, you know, the brisk walk and the stiff sharing. Oh, well, you know, it happened to me, it happened to my mother, therefore I, I just have to get on with it. It happens to 92% of all children. So, you know, get on with yes, it. Yes, yes. It's, it's, it's an everyday thing. So we tend to minimise it as a way of coping with it. But the alternative to that is to start developing a non-violent narrative for ourselves so that we can start to feel a sense of compassion for that little girl who was perhaps really frightened and scared, but couldn't say she was frightened and scared. So in this stage, we are learning to connect with those feelings of, of being scared and, and alone. And the final question is, what would your ideal backpack feel like? Mm. Well, this is where I think we're looking at balance. You know, if we're carrying around too much, we can be very lopsided. We can feel very stressed, very anxious, maybe depressed. We want to balance it up so that we have a resilience about our, ourselves. We can cope with those difficult situations. And my view is that the more we unpack a name and develop a relationship with those pieces of our lives, the more resilient we're going to be. And I see this in the playroom with children who are struggling with something. You know, parents will say, oh, well, let me just help. Let me just sort that out for you. Actually, my job is not to do that, is to let them experience that struggle so that they can learn how to cope with it, if you like, not to a point where obviously they're deeply, deeply uncomfortable, I wouldn't leave them in that state. But that can take time to develop comfort with the discomfort and not to squash it and go, oh, this is uncomfortable. I don't want to go there. Actually, some discomfort helps us build resilience. And we're back to the idea of actually going into the fire, going yeah. into the wounds yeah. is sometimes where the healing is going to be. Yes. I think at the time, when I was doing my healing work, I was equipped with a sense of somehow trusting my intuition and my knowing, knowing the unknown. I think it was, it was trusting that sense of, I don't know the answer yet to this question, but I do know that if I don't do this work, I'm not sure I'm going to be here to talk about it. Mm. So I think at the heart of it is when that discomfort comes up in this exercise, it's almost the lifeline that you can throw yourself and I want you to throw, give yourself, is stay with your intuition and your sense of knowing that the answer will come eventually. I'm going to say with stories, I'm thinking of Joseph Campbell's idea that yes. actually in the dragon's lair, yes. the cave that you don't want to go into, yes. that's where the treasure is. I'm so glad you've mentioned that because the hero's journey is a central piece of my work with children and families. It's I use the hero's journey as a framework to help people understand that going into that cave is exactly where, as you say, the treasure is, the gift is, the message is. And once you know that and you have that, you can emerge from that cave in a stronger way. You know, you've got better tools, you've got more, um, as my father would always say, you know, you have more bark 
on. <laughs> it's more bark, you know. Uh, he doesn't mean literally shouting, but as in a tree, you know, there's there's there's, there's more more cover, I suppose, or um, texture, maybe. So I'm very interested in how we can use all of your knowledge to help people who have got a sort of bereaved inner child. And I think the best way to do that is a letter that somebody has sent to me, and we will share that in just a moment. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. So we're doing something special and something different now. We're saying anybody can write in to us with a letter to discuss with myself and my guests. And I think we can really get a lot from this letter. So thank you very much to Alice who wrote this to us. My siblings and I both lost our parents to cancer between the ages of 11 and 21. We're now almost a decade on, and while we seem to be coping relatively well on the surface, there are some common challenges we're facing in adulthood, all noticeably underpinned or exacerbated by chronic social anxieties and a deep sense of low self-worth. Before I go into these challenges, it's worth reflecting on what having a parent means. Not just a source of unconditional love, support and guidance, a parent provides mentorship, instills confidence and provides a physical and emotional sanctuary where you're free to rest, nest, fly away from and fly back to. A parent can also provide a financial buffer or safety net, a platform from which you can pursue more self-actualizing goals rather than feel obliged to take a job that merely pays the bills. Ultimately, having parents means a psychological groundedness and an unwavering sense that whatever happens, there's someone who will always be there for you and there's always someone safe that you can return to. When both parents are taken away at a young age, there's a stunted growth of one's inner child and two subliminal messages emerge from the fog of trauma that are nigh on impossible to shake. You are alone in the world and you are not worthy. No mother, no father, no protector, no confidant, no safety net, no unconditional love, no mentor, no family home, no sanctuary. The nest you've always known has disappeared from under your feet. You're left with a deep sense of ungroundedness. This means that in our romantic relationships, we're doomed to feel unworthy of lifelong love, which manifests as jealousy or avoidance. In our careers, we settle for jobs that disinterest us because we don't feel worthy of pursuing more fulfilling avenues. In our fragile relations with each other, the nuances of each of our experiences have clashed against each other in the past, driving us to resent one another rather than empower us to heal collectively. Sadness, anger, guilt and unworthiness are underneath the tip of the iceberg of self-sabotaging anxiety, jealousy and avoidance. My question is, in the absence of parents, How do you heal from feelings of nihilistic loneliness and how do we find healthy sources of unconditional love, support, mentorship and sanctuary? Wow. I mean, this is quite a difficult cave to go into, really, isn't it? And I have to say thank you very much, Alice, for going in and sending us a report back from the cave. And I'm sort of hoping that actually putting this letter down 
has effectively made you realize exactly what it is you're dealing with, which, you know, when you actually see the dragon is pretty terrifying, but it's better to see the dragon than just to see the shadow of the dragon, I suppose, is the first thing I'm going to say. But I think I'm going to hand over to Amanda at this point. Yes. uh, Thank you, Alice, for writing that story to us. I think the act of doing that, I'm hoping, not only has given you a sense of, of, and us, of of clarity of your your pain and your loss, which I'm so sorry, that really is, I think, the biggest loss, really, both parents at such a young age, but also tells me that there is a real sense of strength and purpose in your in your writing itself to have been able to actually do that is a huge achievement in itself but it's more than that it's it's a, I, I get a feeling that you not only understand your challenges and and what those represent to you but that there is there is a way out of the cave and I think the way out is the way in it's it's really as, as simple as that and it, come back to the the Tonkin model that I, I referenced earlier, which is I think the realization that grieving is a is a continuum. It's not something that we do once and then we're forever over it. It is something that we need to keep returning to. But I think what I can offer is the idea of doing it in stages or doing it in blocks of time so that you have a rest, but you also give yourself time to focus on your grieving, but it's not, doesn't so that it doesn't feel like a constant. I think there are probably three things that you need in a cave when you're in there. The first is, and whether this is imaginary or whether it's a real, a real person, but you need a helper. You need to have um, a guide of some sort in that cave. As I say, whether it's it's something that you you carry, you already carry around with you, and you know this person in your life. But if you don't, then I would strongly urge you to find a guide who can support you and partner with you as you learn to grow around this huge loss in a perhaps different way. And those guides come in all different forms. As therapists, Andrew and I would be classified as as a a guide of one sort. There are other types of guides, might be a trauma expert, a grief expert, um, looking at this from a somatic perspective through the body. Anyone who you really feel comfortable with to partner with you on this on this journey. The second tool that you need is either a pen or a crayon. And that is to do what we were talking about earlier, which is to write, write the stories, write the stories of your family and keep writing because that will relieve what we call the, the psychophysical suffering that you have by showing you what you have internalized through your generational scripting and what you can now let go of. And I think that's really important that there may be aspects of this that you're ready to put down and ready to let go of. You don't need to hang on to them. But 
only by, as you have so ably shown us in your letter, write those stories, tell all those stories, write them for yourself first, keep them in a journal and do it daily, make it a daily practice. This is part of a spiritual practice. So we've got two things. We've got uh, get yourself a guide, get yourself a pen. What's the third thing? The third thing is what I loosely call self, self-care, some kind of practice that enables you to remain present with the stress signals in your body so that you can set up a dual communication between your, your connecting with the past uh, the stories from the past, from your family, and also remaining very present in the here and now. So as you connect with those stories, you may find that your body starts to experience quite a lot of awakening to stress, to, to trauma response. So you want to have a, whether it's yoga, moving your body, any kind of movement that allows that process to be quite fluid and to to remain safe while you do that. Um, and actually, I've got a couple of other podcasts in this series that you might like to consider listening to as well. I have a, a podcast on self-care. That would be a good one to listen to. And I've also got one on anxiety because there's going to be a lot of anxiety coming up and you can quite easily get into old coping mechanisms, which are not going to be very useful today. So I would listen to those two as well. My two thoughts are, I mean, brilliant that you've got these two nigh-on impossible messages that were subliminally given to you. You are alone in the world and you are not worthy. The great advantage of actually having these messages now is we can begin to challenge them. So the final question is, how do we find healthy sources of unconditional love, support, mentorship and sanctuary? And I think that also goes to the other impossible thing that's nigh on impossible to shake. You are alone in this world. I mean, this is something I'm currently struggling with and I'm 62. And, you know, this is my task at the moment is to recognise effectively I'm not alone in the world because I've sort of got myself, if that makes any sense, that I have a uh, an inner wisdom, an unconscious, um, Jungians would call it a self, that is here for me as well as my ego, the sort of the the part of myself that I use to get up in the morning, go off to work and come home again and tells me that, you know, I rather fancy that cake, um, that there's a deeper self inside that actually knows that maybe the third piece of cake is not a good idea and actually is a resource that I can pull on. And I think we're back to the the whole idea of parenting the inner child. You do have the resources and you can learn to build up the resources. So the healthy source of unconditional love, support and looking after is from yourself. Now, you can find the mentorship from a whole range of different people who will come and go, often at points that you actually need them. You know, that um, maybe you discovered this podcast and uh, Amanda has been just the mentor you need, or maybe um, the mentor you need is going to show up in another couple of weeks' time. They don't have to always be around forever. That's the nature of uh, mentorship. And there are lots of forms of sanctuary. You know, it could be nature. 
it could be a retreat center somewhere that you go to from time to time. It's going to change in your life. You have different phases in your life and you'll have different sorts of mentorship and sanctuary in those different phases. But you can find the unconditional love and support from inside. And, you know, if you do do the therapy work, they will help you move from being an aid that you take into the dragon's cave to taking your inner wisdom and that bigger sense of yourself that is, um, I want to say transposes, um, transcends is the word I need, transcends just the ego. But these are big, big subjects. And I, I'm pretty certain we will come back to them yet again on this podcast at some time in the future. In fact, actually, I'm making a mental note to myself that uh, I maybe need to find somebody who can talk to us about our bigger self as opposed to our ego. So um, I have to say, Amanda, thank you very much for going into the dragon's cave with me. As a witness on The Meaningful Life, I have to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? My life has more meaning, I think, now that I feel I have a, a clear sense of purpose to it. So I, I have a, a reason, um, not only to get up and enjoy my cake, if you like, but also to share it and to be creative. I think being creative brings me meaning whether it's painting, whether it's drawing, whether it's going for a walk with my dog, whether it's going in, into nature, having a sense of connection, as we've been talking about the self, the aloneness of self, I think getting comfortable with that is something that I've increasingly, and rather latterly, I suppose, discovered that that's the basis for feeling really safe and secure in the world. And then I think the third thing would be connection, would be having having both personal and social connections uh, with family, with friends. Family is very important to me. So is having friendships, people in my life who I can relate to and who bring me joy. So the giving and the receiving, I think in many different ways, that's, that's all part of the, the joy and meaning of my life now. Well, thank you very much for being my witness today. This is not where the conversation ends because Amanda and I are going to um, continue this conversation. If you'd like to hear the rest of the conversation, what I've got out of this today, we'll also find out if Amanda's seen anything differently as well and the three things she knows deep down to be true. If you'd like to find out all of those things, here's details of how you can become a member of our supporters circle. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.